the RCRM Speaker Series Season 2. I am Dr. Georgiana Stanchu, curator at the Royal Canadian Regiment Museum, and today I'm happy to resume our series in the company of Mike Baker, the curator at Elgin County Museum. A graduate of University of Western Ontario with degrees in history and education, Michael Baker is well known to the regional historians as the collections curator at Fanshawe Pioneer Village and the curator of regional history at Museum London. He is also the editor of Downtown London Layers of Time and the co-editor with Hilary Bates Neary of 100 Fascinating Londoners and Street Names of London, an Illustrated Guide, both published by James Lorimer of Canada. He's a former president of the London branch of the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario and of the Heritage London Foundation and the past president of the Elgin's Historical Society. Mike Baker is returning to our program after presenting a very informative account of the uh, British Commonwealth Air Training Plan in southwestern Ontario during the Second World War. Last year was his presentation. For this year's series, Mike has looked at some of the memorials created to honor sacrifices made in the First and Second World Wars a fitting tribute, some Western Ontario War Memorials, is a talk about what has happened to these memorials now that many years have passed since the end of the two conflicts. While most Canadians are familiar with the Cenotaph, they are uh, but one type within a range of memorials that appear to honour soldiers in the years following both world wars. Others included public buildings and parks, as well as a variety of monuments. It was also common for schools, churches, office buildings, and even factories to enshrine a list of um, a list on their walls of those students, parishioners, or staff members who had volunteered to serve their country. Mike Baker has seen many of these memorials, including a chapel dedicated to the 91st Battalion Canadian Expeditionary Force arrive at his museum. Do they fit the museum's mandate and where will they be placed? Let's listen to Mike giving an answer to this question. In the past year, the Elgin County Museum has become home to several unique war memorials, each intended to honor those lost in World War I in a fitting and permanent way. Their arrival in the museum, however, now begs the question, how can they continue to serve the purpose for which they were made if they cannot be seen? Ours is not the only museum to have received donations of this type, and indeed, the reason behind these donations, the closure of schools, churches, hospitals, even legions, is, if anything, accelerating. In the years following the Great War, communities across Canada looked for ways to commemorate those they had lost. The memorials that appeared took many forms, from illuminated and cast honor rolls to halls, gates, hospitals, and magnificent statuary. Many cenotaphs in use today 
were built following the First World War to honor its dead. As Professor Jonathan Fance points out in his book entitled Death So Noble, these memorials made a significant contribution to the development of the central myth surrounding the war that most Canadians would eventually embrace. After examining a great many memorials, he finds that they fall into one of two categories, the utilitarian or the ascetic. Memorials in the ascetic tradition, usually represented by a statue or a stone carving and accompanied by an honor roll, are today some of Canada's finest pieces of public art. Stratford, for example, as a monument created by Walter Allward, designer of the Vimy Ridge Monument, perhaps the greatest of Canada's World War I memorials. Petrolia's memorial is by Emmanuel Hahn, another of Canada's great sculptors. Conversely, the utilitarian memorials might not appear to be memorials at all at first, especially since it has been nearly a century since most were built. The town hall in Dutton, a village in Elgin County, and the Middlesex Tower at the University of Western Ontario were both built as war memorials and both contain honor rolls listing the dead. The Middlesex Tower, completed in 1922, is part of the Arts Building, one of the first two buildings to be built on the new campus. Funded in part by the county, it was chosen by Middlesex because the new campus was then outside the city limits. Hospitals were another form of the more utilitarian type of memorial. St. Thomas made a rather plain addition to an earlier hospital in 1924, renaming it the Memorial Hospital. War Memorial Children's Hospital on South Street in London was for over 60 years part of the Victoria Hospital healthcare complex once located there. The Children's Hospital building replaced many years ago, is now abandoned and awaiting reuse or demolition. The plaque that once adorned the wall inside is in storage. This bears out the main argument given at the time against the building of these utilitarian memorials, which was that at some point the building would no longer be able to provide the use for which it was built. This is also the case in St. Thomas, where the hospital was demolished in the 1990s. However, in this case, as we shall see, the original commemorative elements are actually still in the public eye today. The idea of building a hospital in St. Thomas as a memorial for the war dead was first mentioned publicly at the annual Warden's Banquet on November 21, 1918 a mere ten days after the armistice was signed. Among a series of toasts made that evening, a call was made by St. Thomas Mayor E.A. Horton, who had lost a son in the war, for a combined city-county memorial to the men who would not be returning. The reply came from the event's chairperson, longtime county clerk Kenneth W. McKay, who suggested that a new hospital would be the most fitting monument to the memory of the fallen heroes. 
McKay had more of a right than most to offer an opinion on what constituted a proper war memorial. During the war, in addition to running the county, he had been the treasurer of the Patriotic Association and had served on the local Victory Loan Committee, as well as on two national boards, the National Service Commission and the Military Hospital Commission. He had loaned his ancestral home on Center Street to the Red Cross for the duration of the war as the headquarters for the over 50 women's organizations supplying soldiers overseas with home comforts, mostly by knitting, sewing, and packing crates full of preserved soap, candy, fruitcake, and cigarettes. It was not a great stretch to come up with the suggestion of a new hospital. During that year's flu epidemic, the existing hospital had come in for some serious criticism. Both management and facilities had been found wanting to such an extent that the doctors were proposing to leave and build their own hospital. However, once the plan for the memorial gained traction, they were prepared to wait it out. In the end, the memorial took the form of a large addition to the existing Amasa Wood Hospital, which was then renamed the Memorial Hospital. It took exactly six years to become a reality, opening on November 19, 1924, with a ceremony that saw the memorial elements of the hospital unveiled during the building's official opening. Those elements were comprised of a life-sized soldier cast in bronze, three large stained-glass windows set into one wall of a separate formal space off the main entrance, where two large bronze plaques containing the names of those lost in the Great War were located. It could be said that the hospital, at least in this part of the building, represented a combination of the ascetic and the utilitarian. The bronze soldier in full kit standing at attention to the right of the front door was cast in Toronto by F.G. Tickle and Son. He has at least three identical brothers, one in St. Mary's, one in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and one in Sarnia. The plaque in the base reads, Erected to the memory of the men and women of Elgin County who served in the Great War. Inside the building, the chapel-like formal space found near the entrance is firmly in the realm of the ascetic. The space is primarily lit by three large stained-glass windows whose figures relate to central themes that Professor Vance has found within and contributing to the Canadian war myth. The central window, almost six feet square, features Sir Galahad, one of King Arthur's round-table knights, in search of the Holy Grail, which can be seen in the hands of one of the three angelic figures in the upper left. The knights of the round table in Professor Vance's view constitute a popular spiritual metaphor in memorials to the war dead. It is an image, he says, that has the advantage of combining a righteous quest with the fellowship of comrades in a common cause. By defeating the German armies, the nation's fallen had followed in the footsteps of King Arthur and his knights, who with their quest had returned righteousness to the earth and made it safe for the faithful again. In supporting this assertion, Vance quotes a former divisional commander, Sir Archibald MacDonnell, who says in his book, I never came away from listening posts on the front line without feeling that men in the ranks were like knights of old, 
They were the stuff of legend, figures who would be spoken of in reverential tones. The image of the night, says the newspaper coverage of the hospital's opening, is to typify the spirit of sacrifice of the Canadian soldier and the noble deeds they achieved. The window was probably based on George Frederick Watt's painting of Sir Galahad from before the war. Another very similar version of the window, though on a much grander scale, can be found in the old normal school or teacher's college in Stratford. This window, unveiled in 1920, commemorates 13 former students and a teacher from the school, all of whom were killed during the war. Another World War I memorial, employing Watts's Sir Galahad, is in the Cochrane Street United Church in St. John's, Newfoundland. The recurrence of the image across the country bears out Vance's conclusion that in associating the Knights of the Round Table and their Christian quest with Canada's fallen, that they became elevated into the realm of martyrdom. To the right of Sir Galahad is a window depicting a victorious Canadian soldier, another image Vance finds to be common in war memorials throughout Canada. This one is undoubtedly based on Bernard Partridge's image of a Canadian soldier at Yeep, where he has just survived the German gas attack of April 1915. The sketch first appeared in the popular magazine Punch in England in May of that year. In the window, the designer, likely an artist from the Robert McCausland Studios, has kept the bomb burst from the original sketch, seen in the upper right, but has raised the Canadian flag so it appears resplendent in the coloured glass behind the figure. Another window, which also uses the partridge sketch, is in the City Hall in Kingston. Here can be found a number of World War I memorial windows, one for every major battle, including one depicting a nursing sister. And it's a nursing sister that is the centerpiece of a third of the three windows in the St. Thomas Hospital. Kingston's is based on a familiar image of the time, whereas it is unknown if the St. Thomas window is based on a pre-existing image. The St. Thomas nurse is certainly much closer to the battlefield, where she is about to assist a wounded soldier, while behind them smoke and flame pour from a bombarded building. The windows in the hospital's alcove or small chapel serve to light two large honor rolls, cast in bronze, also by Tickle and Son. Enlisting the names, no allowance was made for rank. Instead, they are listed alphabetically. Nor are they organized by municipality, with both city and county listed together. One name has been separated from the rest, however, and appears at the top of the second plaque that of Ella Sifton. Sifton was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for his actions on the first day of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, when he took a German machine gun emplacement single-handedly and held off a counterattack until he himself was killed. The committee, charged with the details of the commemorative elements of the hospital, felt he was to be accorded the distinction of a separate location on the plaque. The committee spent some time searching the records for all the right names. In order to be listed, 
One had to have been born in the city or county and to have been resident there at the time of enlistment. It includes all those who were killed in action or died while still in service overseas. To complete the list, the committee took out ads and papers requesting information and occasionally imprinted the list in the papers for people to consult. The lists on each of the two large castings both start with the names beginning with the letter A, suggesting that perhaps a full plaque's worth of names was dispatched to the foundry while a second list was being finalized. As soon as the honor rolls were completed and unveiled, the same work was begun again, this time to identify all the men and women who had volunteered for service during the war. It was pointed out that those who had risked their lives but survived should also be recognized in some way. And so the Book of Remembrance was born. The book would eventually contain 2,250 entries, representing every person from either city or county who served in the Great War. Compiling the list and creating the book took almost six years. The entries are hand-lettered on vellum and run to 487 pages. Each contains a name, regimental number and rank, the names of the parents, the date of enlistment, units served in, battles fought, and if wounded. The entry concludes with whether the subject was killed in action, died of wounds, or was discharged at the end of the war. A newspaper article that appeared in the 1950s credits the great English design firm of William Morrison Company with the book's creation. The calligraphy, it says, was under the direction of Percy Smith, who was a leading English lettering artist and designer of the day. The book would eventually take its place on a table in the center of the chapel. It had already been decided to create the book by the time the hospital officially opened, and therefore the table may have been acquired with the intention of holding the book and the case it was kept in. As with many great war memorials elsewhere in Canada, the work and the cost of the book was borne by the IODE, then known as the Imperial Order of the Daughters of the Empire. Today the surviving chapters are known only by the letters IODE. St. Thomas's 25th Regiment chapter was responsible for the book, and when it was presented to the city and county jointly, they created a trust to ensure its survival. And survive it has. Today, it sits in its original glass and bronze case on the same table in an alcove of the present St. Thomas Elgin General Hospital. To either side of it are the honor rolls from the Memorial Hospital, and in a nearby stairwell can be found the stained glass windows. While the book no longer rests in a respectful silence, but instead in a busy hallway, it may actually be seen by more people than it once was. Many first-time visitors to the hospital may be surprised to find it there, and even more surprised that the book and the honor rolls even exist. It is also surprising that the windows, the book, and the honor rolls are not listed in the Federal War Memorial Database, despite their prominence in the community. The bronze soldier was also brought here from the Memorial Hospital when it was demolished in the late 1990s. 
Wherever the statue was located, it functioned as the city's cenotaph. Even after another cenotaph was installed downtown in the 1950s. Just over two years ago, it was moved a second time and now stands on guard in the Veterans Memorial Garden. The newer cenotaph is also now in the garden. The Soldier Monument was also the scene of a ceremony held each year during the reunion of the 91st Battalion. The 91st had been raised in Elgin County and contained almost only residents of the city and county. A large number of the entries in the Book of Remembrance are members of the 91st. In 1922, many of the surviving members of the 91st and those in the reorganized Elgin Regiment, the area's militia unit, both took an active role in the opening of the Memorial Hospital and in compiling the Book of Remembrance. This may have been part of the impetus to create a separate memorial for the 91st. This would happen in 1932. After a search among the city's churches, it was decided to create a memorial chapel in Trinity Anglican Church on Wellington Street, until recently known as the Purple Steeple Church. The cost was borne mainly by the 91st Battalion Association. It was to be non-denominational, a space where old relatives and members could lay floral offerings or kneel in meditation and prayer on the anniversary of the death of an old comrade or a husband, a son, or a brother. The centerpiece was an altar and cross, flanked on one side by the organ, itself a dedication to those members of the congregation lost in the Great War. On the other side was a stone from Canterbury Cathedral, where the colors of the 91st had been laid up for the duration of the Great War. On the adjoining wall was hung a large, hand-lettered, and illuminated honor roll, created by William Hodkinson, an artist from Sparta. In 1935, the original colors of the 91st were laid up in the chapel in a ceremony where they remained until 2019. Then, the church closed. Declining attendance brought about the need to amalgamate with another church, and it was decided to close Trinity and sell the building. The chapel was offered to the museum. It had occupied a large space in the church, and it would be a challenge to integrate it into the space available in the museum's new exhibit center. However, few events in the county's history could rival the importance of the raising of the 91st, and it was the only monument to the county's achievement of mustering an entire battalion and marking its fallen. Its thousand or so men came from every corner of the county, creating a picture of the people who made up the many communities across its length and breadth. It was also the only commemoration of this group of veterans as a unit. And there remained great interest in the 91st, as witnessed by a series of events marking the 100th anniversary in 2016 of the unit's departure overseas. A reenactment, a concert, and a reception at the armories were all well attended, and in the early evening, images of most of the unit's members were projected on one of the building's outside walls. The installation at the Elgin County Heritage Center of the 91st Battalion Chapel from Trinity has provided us with an opportunity to illustrate the sacrifice made by the county in the Great War. It has also allowed us 
as a community, to not break faith with those that perished in the conflict. We will remember them. Thank you, Mike Baker, for bringing to attention the important question of how will the men and women who made the supreme sacrifice be remembered in years to come. In uh, recent years, many of these memorials have disappeared indeed, along with the buildings that once housed them, taking away uh, perhaps the only public commemoration of the service these men and women provided. Our series continues next month with a presentation by Dr. Tanya Grozinski, who will talk about the government approach to the topic of commemoration between 1954 and 2014. The title of her presentation is Making Their Place, Commemorating the Dead in War and Peace, 1954-2014. Thank you for your interest, and don't forget to subscribe to our uh, RCRM Speaker Series Both seasons are available on Simplecast, Spotify, YouTube, and name it.